Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Like you, if you please stand for the reading of God's Word. We are in John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. John 1, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them follow him and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Father, I pray that uh, we live in a, a dark world, and uh, your word, Lord, is the light into our path. I pray that today we would be illuminated, that we would know how to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. Open up our hearts and our minds to receive your word today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. may be seated. I read something this week that I found interesting. Compare two leaders. Leader A lifted an entire nation out of despair. He mobilizes people against unimaginable odds with a clear vision and an inspiring passion. He launched a movement that has literally impacted everyone alive today. He set in motion an industrial and scientific revolution that produced the first computer, the first jet airplane, began human exploration of space, and unlocked the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the modern world, in one way or another, has been influenced by this man. By the time that he died at only age 56, everyone on the planet knew his name. Without a doubt, Leader A changed the world. Leader B lived during that same era. In fact, he died just 21 days before Leader A. But his life was very different. At the height of his influence, Leader B ran a school with just about 100 students. He wrote a few books, but was not widely regarded. He was beloved by his family and his friends and had a reputation of being both intelligent and faithful. But at the time of his death, almost nobody knew his name. And most considered his life's work unfulfilled, including Leader B himself. So given the choice, which leader's strategy would you rather study? Which leadership conference would you rather attend? The one featuring a keynote address by Leader A, or the one with a small workshop in the back hall given by Leader B? 
If you are inspired by the world-changing effectiveness of Leader A, you've chosen Adolf Hitler. Leader B was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was executed by the Nazis for his relentless opposition to Hitler. You know, guys, in life, who we follow defines who we are. So how does one define a follower of Christ? Here's one way of thinking about it that I found helpful. There are two ways of sorting whether an object is in or out. One way is called the bounded set. With bounded sets, you determine whether an object is in or out by carefully defining what the boundary is. For instance, you could determine whether something is a triangle by saying that it must meet the minimum requirements of being a geometric shape that has exactly three sides and three angles. The membership in a bounded set is always clear. Something is either in or it's out. A circle will never be a triangle. The object either, either satisfies the criteria or it doesn't. Now another kind of set is called the centered set. Here objects in this set are defined by their orientation to what the center is. Membership in this set is dynamic and not static. What matters is movement. Take, for example, the set Bald People. The absolute center would be Mr. Clean, that completely hair-free cartoon detergent spokesman. Now, someone outside this set would have been the profusely haired Albert Einstein. But here's the thing. Now, a baby may be born bald, and so is in the bald group. But he's growing hair, so he's out of, going out of the way out of the bald group. On the other hand, a 20-year-old may have a head full of hair, but it's beginning to recede, so he's on his way into the balding group. And so what's the num minimum number of hairs required to be part of the group? Only God, who has numbered the hairs on everyone's head, knows for sure. Now with that in mind, Jesus got into more trouble than anything else when he warned people, who were sure they were on the inside, that they were actually in danger of being on the outside. But he treated every, every, people who everyone else knew were outsiders as though they might actually be insiders. Samaritans, lepers, centurions, divorcees, and more were treated this way. The scriptures revel in this sort of thing. For example, when Rahab is identified in the book of Joshua, she is described as Rahab the prostitute. And when she's affirmed in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith, she's called the prostitute Rahab. When she's cited as an example of good works in the book of James, she's once again called Rahab the prostitute. Really? Is there no other word available? Like Rahab the redhead or Rahab the vegetarian? Clearly Rahab stands out as an example of someone who appears not to fall within the established boundary markers. And yet, she is a part of what God is doing. She, she seemed to be on the outside when in actuality, she was on the inside. Maybe we could say, Rahab went through rehab. Sorry, that came to me the other day when I was driving to work. <laughs> Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. This morning, we're going to see the qualifications and distinctions of being a follower of Christ. Verse 35, please. Again the next day John stood with two of his disciples 
And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Imagine the scene with me. Here these two disciples of John are just standing there with John the Baptist. I'm sure it was just an ordinary day and a long list of other ordinary days. I seriously doubt they woke up that morning and said, Today I'm going to forsake my old life and henceforth devote my entire life to following this man Jesus. But as Jesus walked by, John the Baptist once again announces, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now verse 37 almost seems anticlimactic. It simply says they heard John's words and they followed Jesus. Have you ever wondered, what was it about Jesus that would make men drop everything that was dear and important to them and begin following him? The late Scottish preacher and theologian James Stewart makes a powerful statement when he talks of the mystery of Jesus' personality as a startling coalescence of contrarities. He writes this, He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red heart scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet for sheer stark realism he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire that they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the end, himself he could not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. I love that. And let me tell you, this morning, Jesus is the only one who is not only able to fulfill those kind of sentiments, but he actually surpasses the loftiest words that man could ever come up with. And so when these men are confronted with that kind of majestic purity, they drop everything and begin following him. They had no idea what the future held. They only knew that they did not want to face it without Christ. What about you this morning? If you were doomed to live the same life over and over again for eternity, would you choose the life that you are living now? Now that question is interesting enough, but I've always thought the point of asking it is really the unspoken, potentially devastating follow-up question. That is, if your answer is no, then why are you living the life that you are living right now? I urge you to stop making excuses and do something about it. I exhort everyone in here, including myself, to truly become disciples of Jesus Christ. Will it be easy? No. Warfare is never easy. 
And that's what we're signing up for. We war against demonic principalities and powers and the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And if we truly understand that, we can have a life of purpose on earth and unimaginable joy in eternity. But we have to come to terms with who Jesus really is and what that means for those of us who follow him. Otherwise, we run the risk of living a life that is religious but devoid of purpose and power. We will see this as we make our way through the Gospel of John. Not everyone is going to embrace the mission of Christ. I guess in some sense, they would have called him the disappointing Savior. What do I mean? Well, in John 6, after he had fed the multitude and there was a great crowd, you would have thought that Jesus would have been happy with this. But he said, no, you're not seeking me because I'm your Savior. You're seeking me because you ate your fill and now your guts are full. And so he calls them right there to repentance. And they didn't like it. And in fact, it says many of them left following him from that point on. And this finally pinnacles later on in John when Pontius Pilate scourges him and marches him before Israel and the people who had just previously said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Pilate now says, Behold your king. And now the people saw that Jesus wasn't going to bring them great physical blessing and freedom from the yoke of Rome. And so they now change their mind and say, instead, crucify him. And you know what? We have to be careful of that ourselves. Because there can come times in a Christian's life when we feel like God didn't do his part. We want a spouse or a job or better health. We run the risk of wanting a genie that will do all of our bidding. And if God doesn't come through the way that we think that he should, we are ready to turn our backs on him, at least temporarily in our mind, if nothing else. But just like it will say in John 6, many disciples says, this is a hard thing. Who can accept it? And they followed him no more. Why? He was the disappointing Savior. This is a theme that plays a big part in the Gospel of John. And it begins right here in our next verse when Jesus asked, What do you seek? Or we could reward it by saying, Why are you following me? Verse 38, please. Then Jesus turned and seeing them and seeing them following said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. Well, obviously it was not enough for them just to hear about Jesus. They wanted a personal introduction to him. So they got one, and they began to follow him, literally. They were walking behind him, following him. Have you ever had anyone follow you like that? It's a strange feeling. You want to turn and ask them, hey, why are you following me, you psycho? That's kind of what Jesus does. Well, I mean, he doesn't call them psychos. That's just my lack of sanctification. Jesus turns to them and says, hey, what are you looking for? If you have a red-letter edition of Scripture, then you may know that these are the first words Jesus spoke in the Gospel of John, and they really are remarkable. 
These are the first words that Jesus utters in, per, in uh, public ministry, and they are, what do you seek? I still think these are the first words that he says to any of us. What do you seek, or what are you looking for? And it seems this caught the disciples off guard because they replied, where are you staying at? But once again, I think this is the key. Jesus asked, what are you looking for? Perhaps without them even fully realizing their reply, they say, where are you staying? Because wherever you are, that's where we also want to be. When Jesus asked them, what are you seeking? He was forcing them to define their purposes and their goals in following him. Were they just looking for a revolutionary leader to overthrow Rome? And they had better just join the zealots. Little did Andrew and John realize that that day, how their lives would be transformed by the Son of God. This is a very important text. The first question spoken to the disciples is, why do you seek me? And do you know what the first command was? The first command given is, follow me. You see, Christianity is not merely an intellectual belief in a person. Christianity is a relationship that involves change. To follow somebody means three things. One, you learn about them in order to think like them. Two, you study them to live like them. And finally, three, you want to live your life for what they live for by thinking how they think and living how they live. Christianity is not just the academic study of the historical Christ. For example, if you study the history of Adolf Hitler, that doesn't make you a Nazi. It's only if you would believe and live like Hitler that you would be considered a Nazi today. In the same way, being a Christian just doesn't mean that you've read about Jesus. It means that you read in order to mirror his life, in order to change yours and your purposes. Let's break that down. What do you seek? Where are you staying? Let's make it even more simplistic. We can simply reduce the conversation to two words. What? You. That is the answer for the Christian. Question. What are you looking for? Answer. You. I want you. I want to learn from you, and I want to live like you, and ultimately I want to behold your face forever. I want Christ, and that's really what the Bible is all about. So let me ask you the same question. Why are you here? What are you seeking this morning? Some people might say, I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. Some others might say, I'm here because there's nothing good on TV on Sunday mornings. But what should our answer be? I'm here for one reason and one reason alone. I'm here for Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul declares, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen. In other words, all the promises of God are wrapped up in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. We think we're after a change in our situation or help with a difficulty. But like these early disciples, what we're really deep down craving is the Lord himself. For in him and him alone, all of God's promises are fulfilled. 
Please notice, Jesus doesn't say, see and come. He says, come and see. Some people get that reversed. Here's how that works. If you are stubbornly waiting for God to jump through a bunch of hoops to prove himself to you, he doesn't have to play that game. No, we come first, and then we will see. So it's as though Jesus says, I want you to take a moment to reflect on that question, and then it's time for you to do something about what you've reflected upon. It's now time to take action. Some might be here today who have been thinking about making the next decision for Christ and taking the next step to follow him or just jump in deeper where where we are. If so, you need to hear this. There's a time for reflection, but there also comes a time for action. For he invites us to come and see, then investigate, but eventually you have to make a decision. And so in our text today, that's what they did. And it took just one night. Notice they asked where Jesus was staying. Now remember, Jesus had nowhere permanent to lay his head. He was basically homeless, going from place to place, asking people to come and see. So who knows where he took them But that day. But the Bible says they stayed with him until about 4 o'clock that afternoon. And just like that, once we have asked our questions and done our investigation, and taken the next step, then guess what we have to do? If we truly embrace him and his teachings, like those two men, it says they never went home again. They never went back to their old life because they have found the source of all life. 1 Timothy 6.19 says, Storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. What does that say to us? There is a life that we can live that really isn't life at all. It's just existing by trying to squeeze out all the pleasure you can from the few years you live on this earth. But we were made for something greater. A life of purpose, meaning, and heaven at the end. That is the only true and real life, my friends. And the only way to embrace it is to sell out to Christ. C.S. Lewis makes this keen observation in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes, Christ says, give me all. I don't want a portion of your time and a portion of your money and a portion of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires that you think are innocent as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Verse 40, please. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found, out his, he found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. That word found in verse 41 is where we get our English word Eureka. It is used three times in our passage. When, when Jesus found Philip, when Philip found Nathaniel, 
And when Philip says to Nathanael, we have found him, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. They were both so impressed, they went and found their brothers and brought them to Christ. Andrew found Simon and John brought James. Indeed, they were their brother's keepers. And it's interesting that no sermons are ever recorded from Andrew, but he certainly preached great sermons by his actions. Do you know that every time we come to Andrew in the Gospel of John, he is bringing somebody to Jesus? Now, obviously, we see it in this passage. We'll also see it in chapter 6 at the feeding of the 5,000. It was Andrew who bought the boy who had the five loaves and two fishes to Christ. And later on in chapter 12, some Greeks come to Philip and ask to see Jesus. Now, Philip apparently didn't know what to do, so he runs and gets Andrew. Then Andrew gets them to Jesus. Andrew is our role model for sharing our faith. From Andrew, we learn the value of offering what little we have to Christ. In the feeding of the 5,000, while Andrew would have been aware that such a small amount could no way have fed all those people, he believed that no gift given to Christ would be insignificant. And what did Jesus do? He blessed the food and was able to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. Now, Andrew was a fisherman. But Jesus is calling him to now fish for men. Now, fishing takes some skill. And the same could be said when you're trying to catch men for the Lord. After the men's retreat, as I told you, I went fishing with some real fishermen in here. Uh, They basically did everything for me. Being incompetent does have its advantages. But they take a tackle box that is full of all kinds of stuff. I don't want to get all technical with you. Now, inside that box, you'll have things like spinners, baits, plastic worms, lure stringers. And they even have some really stinky garlic concoction, <laughs> which they promised me would help me catch fish. It might have just been messing with me. I don't know. You know, as a side note, have you ever noticed that women's earrings look like fishing lures? Look around. But anyway, if the fish do not like one kind of bait or color, they will try a dozen other different combinations and sizes of what they were going to fish with. They're going to catch a fish any way possible. I thought about that, and I thought, you know what? Bringing people to Christ is the same kind of situation. You have to pray for that individual. You have to plant the seed of the Word of God in their hearts. And the bait may be good works or personal evangelism, or a mixture of both. Now, someone once said, God must love ordinary people because he made so many of them. Now, we may not be a King David who wrote so many of the beautiful Psalms, or a Simon Peter who preached the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. We may not be a Moses who led over 2 million people out of bondage, but we can all be an Andrew, for his trademark was he was always bringing people to Jesus. While the Bible does not mention the death of Andrew, tradition is rather uniform that he was not nailed, but tied to an X-shaped cross in a two, two days of suffering before he finally died. Do you think he now regrets his decision to follow Christ that day? No way. In closing, maybe for people say, I'm checking out Christianity. But I also understand that Christians can't do this And the Bible says you're supposed to do that. 
You're supposed to love your enemies or you're supposed to give up sex outside of marriage. I just can't accept that. So people want to come to Christ sometimes with a long list of conditions. But the real question is this. If there is a God who is the source of all beauty and love and glory in life, and if knowing Christ will fill your life with goodness and power and joy so that you would live with him in endless ages with his life ever increasing in joy, if that's true, you wouldn't say things like, you mean I have to give up getting drunk or something else? Let's say you have a friend who's dying of a terrible disease. So you take him to the doctor and the doctor says, I have a remedy for you. If you'll just follow my advice, you will be healed and you will live a long and fruitful life. But there's only one problem. While you're taking my remedy, you can never eat chocolate again. Now what if your friend turned to you and said, forget it. No chocolate. What's the use in living? Here's what I'm willing to do, though. I'll follow the doctor's remedy, but I will also keep eating chocolate. Doesn't work, does it? If Christ is really God, then all the conditions we might try to apply have to cease. To know Jesus is to say, Lord, anywhere your will touches my life, anywhere your word speaks, I will say, Lord, I will obey. There are no conditions anymore. If he's really God, he just can't be taken as sort of a supplement. We have to come to him and say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to let you start a complete render to my life, for that is the life that is truly life. And Father, I pray that for everybody in here, including me, wherever we are, that we would know that life that is truly life. And anytime we try to put something in that place to satisfy our desires, I pray it would become a stench to us and we would see it for what it really is, a poor substitute for your Holy Spirit and your salvation and your joy. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.